I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. Drew, I think we have one of our best episodes to date tonight. Oh, I think this is where we're heating up. This is going to be this is going to be where we kind of we break through. <laughs> Sorry, a moth just flew in front we're of my face. We're going to go viral in 2020. Exactly. Okay, well, let's start this week with probably the the most kind of high prestige show this week, The Undoing. So, oh, are you ready to get undone? I'm going to <laughs> I've been undone for years, baby. <laughs> so this is this is a new series um, by David E. Kelly who was responsible, he's got a long pedigree in television, but most recently responsible for Big Little Lies. He has a long history of doing. He has a- <laughs> he's mixing it up now, Billy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's moving, from, he's moving from doing to undoing. Undo. Um, and yeah, so basically it's based on the, um, on the book You Should Have Known by... By Jean Hanf Kareitz. I'm going to pretend like I'm really familiar with Kareitz. The, correct, the well. correct Dutch yeah, exactly. pronunciation there. Is she Dutch? Uh, I feel like you just assumed. <laughs> I feel like that sounded. No very, further questions, Your uh, Honour. I feel like that that sounded very authoritative. But well, who's your favourite Dutch writer? Ah, uh, where to start? Yeah, where to start? <laughs> That's what I thought. That's what I thought. So basically, um, it's based on the novel you should have known. Um, Is it true to this novel? Yeah, I think it kind of. <laughs> It undoes the novel. <laughs> it undoes the novel. I mean, the novel is amazing. I, I, did you read it? Oh, 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 never, never. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's let's getting into it. Um, so basically, it's written by David E. Kelly, and it's 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 a hard um pilot to summarise because it's pretty diffuse in tone, and there's a lot of twists and turns. Maybe the best way to put it is about a uh, upper class New York couple, Grace Fraser, played by Nicole Kidman, and Jonathan Fraser, played by Hugh Grant. Um, they both have a child at an elite public, uh, elite private school, and it's basically about what happens when um, a young woman comes into their life, um, Elena Alves, Matilda De Angelis, who's drawn to Nicole Kidman's character in a bit of an uncanny way. She breastfeeds in front of her in a very mm. conspicuous way the first time she comes to a school PNC meeting. She then approaches her naked in a mm. in a change room at a county cl- at a country club. And look, this is a bit of a spoiler. She's found murdered at the end of the episode. So, and that's actually probably something you'll get just from the trailer. It's a murder mystery, a murder investigation. But the pieces come together in quite. An or elliptical, do they? Elliptical. Yeah, maybe they don't come together. <laughs> maybe that's yeah. yeah. So it's the same thing. Like watching through made me realise how much how influential Big Little Lies has been. Like, it feels yes. like Big Little Lies really set the scene for a kind of the, the psychodrama to make a comeback. So it feels like this, Little Fires Everywhere, there's this fascination with, like, heightened melodramatic psychological dramas yes. in which it's often really unclear whether you're looking at reality in a kind of objective mm. way or from the character's perspectives. Definitely. I think this has almost become a, a genre or subgenre of television itself. Yep, absolutely. The, the Big Little Lies... Uh, spin I suppose off. spin-offs. And, and the second season of Big Little Lies felt a bit like that too, just because it was almost an entirely new narrative in some ways. It didn't, mm. it didn't feel continuous, mm. I thought, with the first season. What so would you say characterises this genre? So for me, at least, it would be a close coterie of, of female friends, yep. often yep. middle-aged. I was gonna, exactly. So middle-aged white women, there's usually some kind of outsider. Who affluent. Is, who is, yeah, affluent, <laughs> highly affluent, um, and some outsider who is kind of racially marked in some way. So in Big Little Lies, or who's marked by class or by yes. race in some way. So in Big Little Lies, season one, you've got the um, the young woman played by, who's a woman from Fault in Our Stars? Um, you know oh, who I mean? Yes. Yeah, so she's, she's, in season two, it's the Zoe Kravitz character in... Big Little Lies, uh, sorry, in Little Fires Everywhere, it's the African-American character who comes into Reese Witherspoon's kind of southern cookie-cutter world. Mm. And here it's a woman who appears to be kind of framed as um, Hispanic, mm. who is, even just by virtue of her race, is immediately a kind of disruption in this really 
uh, cliquey. Mm. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, like Nicole Kidman just kind of feels like she's continuing the character from Big Little Lies. I don't mean, yes. that, in, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just no. it, it is a slightly different character in terms of character traits, but it's the same stylized, mannered, mannered mode of it's, acting, it's, isn't it? It's certainly cut from the same cloth yep. as Big Little Lies. It feels like a... A, par- a mirror image of Big Little Lies transplanted to the East Coast. It kind of feels like it feels like she's come straight out of Big Little Lies, and Hugh Grant's come straight out of a very English scandal. And you've just got the two different <laughs> yes. series intersecting. Um, so I think that's a part of it. I think a very heightened expressionistic direction is yes. a big part of this, and kind of auteurist direction. So Big Little Lies was directed by Jean-Marc Vallée. Yeah, it's very much a Jean-Marc Vallée. This is directed by Suzanne Beer, yeah. who did The Night Manager. So a very strong directorial signature, and Kind of, I think another one of the signatures is a certain kind of soundtrack. So very breathy, um, throaty, acoustic-y kinds of renditions of popular songs or well-known yes. songs, but in ways that connote uncanniness rather than authenticity. Yes. And like lots of up cl- close-ups. So it's something I was really... I was kind of curious what your take was on this. Like, I feel like in you know, New York signifies cinema in such a kind of overwhelming way. And I feel like in recent years there's been this move move to kind of almost fragment New York on the screen or to kind of concede that New York isn't what it once was. I'm thinking of like um, Russian Doll, the kind of endless iterations. I mean, he, New York is shot in a really weird way here. Like mm. all the establishing shots are very... Well, I'd be very intrigued to know whether it actually was shot in New York or whether it was shot somewhere, whether it was shot pre-COVID, yeah, during COVID, post-COVID. Maybe. It would be interesting. It, it feels very uncharacteristic. There don't seem to be that many street right. streetscapes that you see. A lot of it's very interior. But, but even the ones you see, there's this weird style where... You know, in what's meant to be an establishing shot, there'll only be one point of focus. Mm. Often a very small point and all the rest of it is blurred. Mm. So it's weird, like, even if it was shot before the pandemic, it feels as remote as New York now feels during mm. the pandemic. It's a real... Re- it's almost like New York... This kind of New York backdrop, this cinematic backdrop of New York is now something that's only available to the ultra-elite mm. or ultra-exclusive. It's like no. this... It doesn't feel, feel like a lived-in cityscape. No, no. And all the establishing shots and all the street shots feel that way it feels highly manic it's like, like a yes. dollhouse like yeah. a dollhouse kind yeah. of setting. denuded of people yeah. and, that, and atmosphere to a certain yep. extent as well absolutely yeah and kind of flattened yeah what, what did you think what, 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 I, I, I say i really liked it i miss, i thought it was strange like what, what did you think i th- i have some mixed feelings about yeah. this i have a couple of questions i'd okay. like to i'd like to put to you because it's a very mixed um, it's a very uh, it shifts tone very dramatically right yes like it's, it's one minute it's almost like farce the next minute it's high melodrama it's yes it's very fluid in terms of tonality so my first question is is nicole kidman's character the worst psychiatrist in uh, history uh, yes yeah, but th- there's nothing better than a bad psychiatrist <laughs> I, I in, love terms of the, in terms of the writing i think she's meant to she's meant to i suppose stumble upon profound insights yeah. into her patients you know uh, i suppose psychological traumas but mm-hmm. Almost every single one of her consultations ends with them storming out. It seems like it seems like her main therapeutic strategy is blame. Is blame <laughs> and blame shifting. Yeah, yeah, or, or just blaming the characters for their own personality. Yes, <laughs> that, but but that, I think it kind of works. You like, there's something so ridiculous about it yeah. that it's it. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of like shows like The Affair. Like I I love seeing like or Divorce, the HBO series Divorce. I love seeing New York therapy presented in a, in a totally ludicrous way. And that's what this is. There is there's something re- like heightened and ridiculous about I mean, she obviously scenes. freaking hates her patients. Yes, oh, absolutely. Every single one of them. <laughs> she almost seems to should be to be tormenting them, to, yep. to ask them, please exactly. go and see someone else. Yep. I'm, I'm done with you. And, <laughs> I've and got I, nothing but contempt for you. And I wonder if that will be a thing. Like all the Maybe. characters have, you feel like 
the characters all have kind of perverse undertones we haven't fully glimpsed yet, and I wonder if there's something going mm. on there with that. But that's not some that's not very subtly foreshadowed. <laughs> uh, no. I think one thing you would say about this show is it, it's a lot of things, but it is not subtle. Uh, yes, it's not subtle, but it is weird. And, and, and sometimes a weirdness can produce a surprise that subtlety... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, sometimes yeah. subtlety is needed to disorient you or mislead you, but this series has the sheer weirdness factor going for it. It, it doesn't does. need the subtlety to do it. <laughs> Second question is, yep. Nicole Kidman, uh, Hugh Grant, good juju, bad juju, somewhere well, in between? At first, I thought weird juju. Then by the <laughs> end, I was kind of like amazing juju. <laughs> I reckon they work well as a couple with secrets. Yes. Like a couple who aren't open I think it's the ideal other. couple. Yep. It, yep. Was, it was weird. It felt yep, like exactly. I didn't feel like there was sort of a great deal of compatibility. It no. felt like Hugh, Hugh Grant had, had stumbled in, you know, yeah. uh, you know, from a time machine from Four Weddings and a Funeral. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Not a, not a particularly skilled dramatic actor. I think I also because often in like rom-coms, both of them play the more restrained party. Mm. You think of like Notting Hill. Hugh Grant is the kind of they both play the kind of the beaters, yeah, or the kind of the kind of quieter ones in a relationship. So see, see them together. There's just a lot of politeness, <laughs> there is. but not much there else. There is there is a polite vacancy yeah. to it. And Hugh Grant try, tries to sort of ham it up a little yep. bit at times, but just had me cringing at times. Just yep. thinking, you know, perhaps he's a better comedic actor than he is a dramatic actor. Although I have to say, and this is again a spoiler. There's a, there's a great scene at the end where, you know, after the murders happened, Nicole Kidman's been trying to call Hugh Grant for about, you know, 12, 18 hours. And there's an ama- I thought an amazing scene where she tries to call him once more and they're in their bedroom and, and the phone rings and she realises his phone's been in their bedroom all day. Yes. That... And, she, and she wonders whether he might have something to do with it. I thought that turn yes. was so creepy and it made his kind of lackadaisical Englishness really eerie in retrospect. Yes, I thought that was definitely. a great a great shift at the end. Definitely. It's almost like his performance did work in, in retrospect. Yes, in exactly. Some ways. Well in in a lot of ways I thought the ending was quite strong. So it yep. it made everything that preceded it work in retrospect. Absolutely. While I was watching I wasn't entirely convinced. Mm-hmm. I found the characters a little bit one dimensional. Yep. The the scenario, the dilemma yep. rather forced. I thought I found yep. the the uh, Latin American character, um, Latina character yep a real a very unusual character like, so, what, what was going on so there I, I'm curious what you think I wonder whether and this is this could be just this is just speculation obviously we, uh, the, the second episode hasn't dropped yet I wonder whether she's had an affair with Hugh Grant maybe the baby is Hugh Grant's he's funding the school and he kills her and that's why she's so drawn to... And why she's so keen to display her nudity and, and dis- establish a weird sort of quasi-sexual Nicole rapport Kidman. with yeah, Nicole exactly, Kidman. Yeah. Um, that, I think that's, that's what's foreground. And once that started, those yep. mechanics started kicking in, mm. I started getting into it. Yep. Um, well, the it, first 30 minutes or so, though, I was, I, <laughs> I was, I was really on the, on the borderline well, there. I've admit, you know, I was in from the get-go. Um, <laughs> and what, what, I mean, one of the things I really love about this kind of new, like, psychodrama is, you know, one of my favourite genres is the kind of 90s erotic thriller. Right. And I feel like this psychodrama has, has, has elements of that. Yes. And, you know, especially the kind of, you know, quasi-lesbian proximity amongst women. Yeah. I, so I, I kind of love that sense of absurdity mm. and hyperbole. And I kind of love that. I mean, remember, we, we watch Little Fires everywhere and we haven't done it on the podcast. But, you know, in retrospect, it feels like one of the things that series didn't quite work or nail was just getting ratcheting up the the kind of the ridiculousness of it to it, the kind of yes. Whereas here it's so absurd and so melodramatic. Yeah, the it's, twist. It's, it's, it's hallucinatory. Yes, yes. The, in a way that really works, I think. That's right. The, the twist is so so absurd and, yeah. and out of character, yeah, and, and yet creepy. And, and yes, yet there creepy. is a slight element of, yeah. of creepiness. Yeah, a, a large character. 
someone who was you you would assume would be a large character um, or play a large role in the drama. Donald Sutherland had a very yeah. very minor role. But in this I reckon when he comes in, he's going to come in big, baby. He will. He, <laughs> you can do, he, he is waiting for a monologue. There is going to be a monologue. It's he's, going to be scathing. Camera, he, camera on him for two minutes. He's hungry and he's going to chew some scenery. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He's, <laughs> he looks ravenous. Yeah, yeah. We haven't <laughs> seen the like last a great white shark. Yeah, yeah. Who <laughs> was ready to chew, bite, spit, swallow. And I think I saw from the previews too, like that the main actress from uh, For Bridleson, the, the Killing, is in it. But I haven't seen her yet. I forget what her name is. But right. the Danish actress, the main detective in that, is in it right. later on. I think but you she, might have confused that with another show. I don't the Blumhouse show I, we're watching. No, 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 no. Um, later on in, in the trailer for the, the Undoing, the prosecutor in the case is played by, oh, right. which makes sense because I think Suzanne Beer is Danish. Uh, or she's she's is she, is she she's Danish? Scandinavian. She's Scandinavian. Some, yeah, some yeah. Stripe, so yeah. I, I think she's worked with that actress. So I think there are other people we'll see coming into it. Okay. I, mean, I, I could just watch an hour of those therapy scenes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's Nicole Kimmer's uh, kind of strategies. The problem is you. <laughs> yes. It's the problem. So is, blame shifting. Yeah, it's the problem is you therapy. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Keep, uh, yeah, you keep, keep going. You had another question or uh, so. Question. Yeah. David E. Kelly. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the king of. Late 90s, early yep. noughties television. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, growing up watching... The Practice. Ma- Ali McBeal, The Practice McBeal, Double, yeah. you know, The uh, Court Procedural, uh, the, the slightly quirky, offbeat characters. Uh, uh, where's he been for the last 10 that's years? interesting. Has he lost his mojo? Has he retained his mojo? Is his mojo, mojo just a, a, a slow boil? That's interesting, because I don't have a clear sense of what he did between, say, Boston Legal and big little lies mm. what's was he the primary writer on big little lies or yes producer? yeah i think he wrote the whole thing oh right yeah so i think he wrote the entire adaptation um yeah it's funny isn't it because i mean you know the early david that david e kelly swagger when it was comic I, I didn't like it as much i think i think mm. i think the absurdity for me works better when it's in this kind of uneasy comic melodramatic hybrid mm. i mm. think i prefer him although i'd be interested to go back and watch ali mcbeal actually i found I found that a little bit awful at the time, but it could be one of the things that's really enjoyable now that time has passed. Yeah, certainly. I, I thought in in that vein, in some ways, this show harkened back to the, the era of pre-quality absolutely. television. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so that, that might be a strength or a weakness, yep. depending on which um, which way you look at it. But it certainly doesn't have that, that lugubrious, you know, solemn quality of a lot of, you know, late quality television it, inverted commas it feels like a reaction against it doesn't it yes. like, it, it, everything is happening all the time there's yeah. constant shifts in time I mean one thing I would say even though you know I really love this I don't think it has like Big Little Lies had a really tight story yes which I don't think this has to no. the same extent um but yeah, it, it, it's interesting like it, it's not dissimilar in some ways to the night of except that you know in terms of plot but that sort of shows how different it is from what we've called mm. that late quality style like whereas the night of is very serious and very Intent and very earnest. This is this is almost played as fast. Yes, I mean this is you know, it's it's very hammy. I mm. found and it's full of it's full of uh, telegraphed shocks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, punctuated by fade outs. You yeah. know, characters yeah. who are literally say, "Wow." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> breathless, breathless tones. And you know. I think Hugh Grant really works in that context as well. Yeah, he does. He does. I loved him. <laughs> <laughs> There's something absurd about this. Are you in? Are you ready? I, I am. 
I am 100% in. You double down. And I'm watching it every Monday. <laughs> oh, well, like, religiously. Absolutely, yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's become like primetime viewing for wow, me it's already. Wow, right, it's right in your wheelhouse. It's right in my wheelhouse. Psychodrama, <laughs> 90s erotic thriller style, over the top, Hugh Grant. I'm in, baby. How about you? You're a Hugh Grant stan, aren't you? I'm a huge Hugh Grant stan. And it's, I, I like seeing Hugh Grant in these kind of roles that give him a bit of time to kind of flex his chops and a bit of space to kind of just be a little bit actorly rather right. than the more somber, you know, cloud atlas kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, it certainly gives him that. It certainly yeah. gives him lots of scope and range. So I'm intrigued to see where this plot's going to go. I, I feel I feel that it's going to it's going to reach even more ludicrous heights. Oh, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so we'll both be undoing it over the next couple of weeks. Oh, well, maybe. Definitely. <laughs> Okay, on to our next series for the week. Um, one of the top trending series on Australian Netflix, The Queen's Gambit, based on a novel by Walter Tevis. Drew, do you want to intro- introduce it to us? Well, I obviously love Walter Te- Tevis. What's your favourite Walter Tevis novel? <laughs> I'm really glad I got that pronunciation yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I was really, really yeah. on the uh, on the fence I, there. I kind of cued you in with by saying Tevis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so... I um I'm a fan of all his novels. Okay. Yeah, any, any in particular? Uh, hard to hard to hard, to, hard to separate. Maybe hard the Queen's separate. Gambit is your favourite. <laughs> it might well be now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the Queen's Gambit is a a very high production uh, series. So set during the Cold War. Real prestige TV. It is. Yeah. It it definitely has all the hallmarks of a of a of a high concept, uh, well produced series, and it's it's it stars. Um, Anya Taylor Joy, mm. so quite a hot young actress at the moment, you know, who broke out in Robert Eggers' The Witch, mm. and uh, has gone on to to greater fame. She did Emma Shyamalan and, and yep. so forth. Um, so she plays an orphaned chess prodigy called Beth Harmon, mm. and the the pilot at least traces. A, it's it's almost like an origin story yep. for this chess prodigy who whose mother tragically dies in a car accident, mm. which may or may not be deliberate. Mm. And she's she's placed in an orphanage. So, uh, and in the process of that, she's subjected to some pretty poor treatment and develops a pretty nasty addiction. So in this, in this first pilot, we see her discovering both her love of chess through the, the gruff but kindly... Uh, groundskeeper played, played by, by the great Bill, Bill Camp, Camp. <laughs> <laughs> and also more perniciously develops her addiction to uh, to tranks. It, it, it maybe it's worth saying that when she arrives at the um, the orphanage, it's still legal to tranquilize children. Yes, but the tranquil the, and they have green pills that are tranquilizers, but that that goes out in terms of legality about halfway through. But all the kids, including her, are still addicted. Yes. Yep. So so this this is almost like an origin story yep. for a. For a famous chess player, and it's, it is it is also framed yep. with Annie Taylor Joy. So yep. Annie Taylor Joy, we see in the opening scene, waking up fully clothed in a bathtub, and then racing downstairs to um, belatedly start a, a chess. Uh, what we what we appear what appears to be sort of a grand chess yep, like a tournament grand, against a grandmaster. It's like a flashback episode. Yeah, basically. that's right. That's right. So it's almost like a flashback episode, and the young Beth Harmon's played by a diff- completely different actress. Mm. So it is interesting to see um, Annie Taylor Joy play quite a minor role mm. in in this pilot. Hardly in it. Yeah, hardly in it at all. And um, and seeing this this young, I think quite accomplished young actress yeah. play um, play a young Beth Harmon. Mm. Um, I, I found this quite absorbing. It comes from director uh, Scott Frank, mm. who last did the Western on Netflix, um, which name just escapes me at the moment. Oh, Godless. Godless. Yep. Godless, which I didn't quite get through, but mm. had similar features here. So mm. a real focus on 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 women and the role of women in um, 
female suppose, protagonist. Yeah, take yeah. on quite unconventional um, uh, roles I against, in, against in, stere- in, stereotypes. In genres yeah. that are often masculine to the Western, whereas this is effectively like a sports film, yeah. a competition film, like a chess. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. I found this in terms of how you might classify it mm. in terms of genre. It's, it's almost a combination of an addiction memoir mm. and a feel-good sports mm. drama with a little bit of origin story mm. thrown in um, into the mix. So I think it would be very interesting to see whether people's understanding of chess plays a role in whether they're, they're into or, mm. or their, their ability to get into the series. Mm. So I found this quite absorbing. I was, I was, I was really in from the first scene and, and despite not even having any understanding at all mm. of chess, although being a bit of a fan of inspirational sports movies, I think yep. that might have been the hook that mm. got me in. Mm. Um, I, I found it quite compelling. I, right. I found the, the time really raced by. I found the production values mm. um, really, really superlative. Mm. And I thought it was really well paced. And the mm. way it visualised the game of chess was quite impressive, even for the absolute you know, novices or absolute um, you know, nonces who wouldn't even, wouldn't even understand chess if someone you know, sat down and explained, mm. explained it to them for an hour, which is probably I fall into that category. But... Mm. Um, nonetheless, it's a hard I was, thing to make a good chess film, I guess. Well, that's right. There aren't, there aren't yeah. many great uh, chess texts, yeah. and I haven't really explored them in great depth either. Searching, Searching for Bobby, Bobby Fischer, Fischer yeah, that's I think would be the big one. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, computer chess? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, obviously, it doesn't really focus so much on the game, but still, <laughs> that yeah. one. But there's, there's, there's the another... musical chess. <laughs> the musical chess, yeah. There's another couple. So it is It is hard, yeah, I suppose, no, to bring... I, granted. Yeah. To bring... I didn't... There was an Edwards Wick movie starring Toby Maguire, which recently came Porn Sacrifice. I never watched that just because I, I didn't. You know, the 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 idea of a chess mm. melodrama doesn't necessarily stand out no, for totally. me or you know ca- catch me as necessarily striking. So oh. were it not for this pro this project and this podcast, mm. I probably would not have ventured into yeah. this right. into this series. But mm. I think the way that visualizes the strategy of chess mm. and also um, I guess shot through with this young girl's perspective mm. and her norm shattering. Mm. Um, role in becoming a, a grand chess master was was quite impressive <laughs> right. for me and I, I know you've got something on your chest you just want to get out so <laughs> I, give it to me <laughs> I, I have to say I I found this bloody boring oh. <laughs> <laughs> I found this so tedious um I guess you know I, I guess for me it, it combines three narratives that I kind of have like three of my least favorite narratives like the trauma narrative the prodigy narrative and the addiction narrative, the addiction narrative can be good, but mm. I guess it's interesting because it's such an unusual hybrid, isn't it? Like it's about a girl who suffers a trauma, she goes to a boarding school and becomes a drug addict, then she probably becomes a chess champion. So I can kind of see how that like hybrid genre approach could be really great. And, you know, and apparently the book is like a real page turner. I was reading like apparently Michael Ondaatje said that he reads it every year. Wow. So I can see how that works. I just, I found the execution just so kind of drab like really I, I, found, I found the main character i mean she's she's pretty much tranquilized the whole time so she I, is. I just found it like just like watching an automaton <laughs> i found i felt, found that the whole series felt kind of narcotized or tranquilized i found I, I can't agree with you i found i found the way it depicted chess really cheesy like really? I found, basically it, her, her conversion to chess basically involves her lying lying in the bed in her dorm room and seeing a chessboard like Visualized projected onto ceiling, the ceiling. Yeah. I, I didn't think it gave any really kind of compelling reason for why she chose chess or why she was drawn to chess. I found the visuals really corny. <laughs> I found. I found wow, this is a this is a this is a Jeremiah. I know. I, I, 
I found her relationship with the chess master really like unconvincing. I the, thought the chess master, Bill Cam. Yeah, yeah. Or the chess. I thought there was no. Like, I know it's kind of like the coaching figure. I thought there was like no chemistry. <laughs> I thought there was like no rapport. I didn't think it even really worked as tough love. She just stumbled upon some dude in the basement and started playing chess with him. And he, yeah. Then he started delivering stern pronouncements. I just <laughs> don't you find something quite energizing and absorbing about the the underdog narrative and the. The underdog sports narrative, yeah, sure. especially. Sure. I mean, I guess, I guess I found the whole thing just so kind of dreary and drab and dull. Like it was also down. Like for a series that's based in a book, it's obviously quite eccentric. It just felt like the whole thing was just so dour and so plodding. And again, like not to keep on harping on about it, but you know, the girl's obviously a good actress, but the character I just found so tedious. Like so, she was just. She just tranquilized the whole time, <laughs> and all the other characters around her were tranquilized. Like the whole thing was just like like a narcotic. Well, Bill Camp may as well have been tranquilized, yeah, given how yeah. much energy he yeah. really brought to the table. I, f- I found I found the palette was like that too. Like the whole thing was just shot in these kind of sepia grey tones. There was just this solemnity, mm. this somberness around it. Uh, yeah, I, well, in some ways, I, it, I had nothing. <laughs> in some ways, I had it, nothing. At heart, it is an inspirational sports narrative, but it's dressed up and and it's yeah. adorned with this this trauma narrative and this addiction yeah. narrative, which gives it a a, a profundity and seriousness yeah. that I think you might have rebelled against. Well, I, I, and you know, in terms of that hybridity, like the the trauma is is first and foremost. So the whole thing is just like it's like watching someone in a state of extreme post traumatic shock, mm. and you know, like. That's uh, granted. That's a, a register I don't like that much in television. But even on its own terms, like I, I didn't think it did a great job of explaining why chess, why she was drawn to chess, and what chess kind of did for her emotionally or personally. I mean that 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 seems like such. I mean, yeah, I, I, I get it. It gave a structure and it gave her something to focus on. But you know, chess chess in lieu of of anything else. I just I, thought, I mean that that is such an eccentric shift to go from this you know, young, orphan, traumatised girl to this fascination with chess. I mean, that's a very eccentric pairing and it's it's tantalising to see how that might play out. I just thought it kind of happened in the pilot. Well, I think any... it's sketched out to a certain extent. You know, oh. you see her mother, um, you know, burning her PhD on advanced mathematics. So sure. it's clearly something genetic. Yeah, sure. You know, some, some inherited... Um, you know, predisposition towards predisposition chess. towards <laughs> well, towards solving mathematical yeah, sure. type puzzles. And... No, I get that. I just thought that. I mean, I just thought like, you know, chess is such a kind of aesthetic pursuit. Like the whole the sound of it, the look of it, the style of it, the kind of and the kind of the space of it, the intense concentration of it, the intense focus of mm. it. I just thought the film, the, the episode, didn't at all capture like the aura of chess. I thought, I thought that was something that it did that it did fairly well. I thought it was quite good at explaining the fundamentals behind chess, and sure. then also some of the more advanced. Yeah, sure. Um, it's obviously the the, yeah, the series good, is named after a, a famous movie yeah. in chess called The Queen's Gambit. It was a good chess guide. <laughs> <laughs> it was good for yeah. I, I, mean, I thought it for someone who's not a fan of chess. Mm. I thought it gave me a good understanding of sure. what might yeah. might attract someone no, I agree. might might be alluring and addictive about the game i guess i just kind of you know yeah i mean it, it definitely it definitely gave you a sense of why it might it might be attractive generally i just didn't really understand why this character was drawn for it or what what it was doing for her in particular yeah I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe the problem. Maybe I'm the crazy one. Maybe I'm the crazy one. To, to, to pass Nicole Kidman's uh, 
you know, <laughs> probably psy- psychiatry. I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, funny. You should get you should get out. <laughs> yeah, I guess from from the reviews I read, it seems like the kind of consensus is that it starts very strong and gets a bit plotting at its later stages. I guess I just kind of felt in terms of plotting, like I, I, I was there. Plotting. I was there. I was I, after. I was like, how could anyone continue? I just I couldn't. Wow. And I thought this was you good. found it a dirge. I did. And it, yeah, I definitely. I mean, yeah, like the whole tone of it, I found dirge. Like I mean, I just found it so monotone. Like wow. I mean, here's another way of putting it is like. I didn't feel like there was any real break in the tone when she discovered her passion. Like somehow mm. I thought it got even more drab mm. and even more dour mm. once she discovered her calling, her vocation. So mm. there was just this kind of, I, I thought for a film about, uh, it was kind of bereft of passion, like certainly obsession, like got, mm. but, but a kind of mechanical well, I think, But I think obsession. that was partly the point. I think yeah, sure. In some ways, that she was a girl who was de- deprived of an outlet sure. of passion. So sure. chess occupied a, yeah. a a life, I suppose, of routine structure and just just preoccupation from yeah. the traumas of her daily life. Does that make good drama, though? <laughs> well, I think maybe this was a combination yeah. of two genres. I'm a really big fan of, yeah. which is the addiction memoir yeah. and the inspirational sports narrative. So that that works for me, and I yeah. think yeah, and I enough. think dressed up in you know superlative Netflix production, period mm. production design. Mm. Um, great performance. I'm looking forward to Anya Taylor Joy um, when she comes when she comes into it later on. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess I, I, I'm just not a fan of the prodigy narrative either. Like, there's mm. just a kind of there's such a preciousness mm. around it. Like, mm. I I just have a feeling that the Anya Taylor Joy mm. depiction of the character is going to be very precious. Mm. I just sense that even from the glimpse of her, I got like the tortured genius, the tortured, the tortured kind of visionary. Yeah. I yeah. think this is a great text about about giftedness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I thought it pathologized giftedness. <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess I just thought you know, maybe I could see it working better as a film. Like maybe I could see you know in terms of the weird shifts. I think it certainly could have worked well as a film. Yeah. I think it, I think it would have been a very good film I mean, in some ways. So another way of putting it is it just, it just felt like it, it was like this whole first episode was just a kind of a flashback, and often by their very nature, flashbacks are kind of expository rather mm. than really complex in terms of tone or engagement. Mm. So, I, so you think that 100% Rotten Tomatoes meter rating is uh, can be wrong? Well, I think often it is. So I think, I think with Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes in particular tends to really inflate or deflate television series. So actually I think sometimes in a television series gets like 100% rating, mm. it's a good indication. It's ticked all kinds of quality boxes. Yes. But it's not necessarily that adventurous. So it seems so, like you're a lone voice in the wilderness yeah, at, well, at this one. I'm, look, I'm happy, to be, I'm happy to be the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> uh, look, to be fair though, like the consensus I read seems to be that it... it, it Everything I was feeling about it, a lot of critics felt by about episode four. So maybe I'm just pressing it in that way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, you're, you're you're prodigious. Yeah, exactly. In your, in your exactly uh, television. So this this is analysis. a this is a must watch for you. I, or I'm I'm in. Yeah, I mean, this is a never again watch for me. <laughs> <laughs> this made me think less of chess. <laughs> you will destroy every chessboard you come across. I will. Yeah. <laughs> okay, moving on to one of our more un- unusual. Um, Inclusions in Pilot Club and a bit of a Halloween-themed one. Um, welcome to the Blumhouse on Amazon Prime. Drew, take us away. Yeah, so Welcome to the Blumhouse is a very interesting entry into the Pilot Club, I suppose, annals. Mm. And the first question is, is it a TV series or is it a collection of discrete movies? Because this is a discussion, this reminds me of a discussion we had early on in the process about whether we were going to include telemovies mm. as part of what we what we reviewed and we decided against it ultimately yeah. a bit you know a bit grudgingly because or regretfully because we you know we love inc- we love watching those as well but this is probably the closest we'll come to reviewing telemovies isn't it because yeah. it's a 
It's an anthology of four telly movies. Mm. Well, actually, I think in original design, eight oh, and four really? this year, four next year. Oh, so wow. amazing. They're loosely. So there's a, there's a very interesting question here as to whether this is TV or movie. So mm. I guess in on category A or argument A that mm. these are these are television. So they they're all released roughly around the same time. Mm. So within a two week period before Halloween, mm-hmm. they've all got the signature of a Blumhouse production. So yep. this is, comes from super producer Jason Blum, mm. whose own production house is famous for creating low-budget horror movies mm. that deal with, in some ways, social themes, so mm. quite sort of story-centric, mm. and have, have, I suppose, often a, a relatively high-profile cast as mm. well. Mm. Now, a lot of the time they do get theatrical releases. Sometimes they go straight to, mm. to video on demand. The most famous Blumhouse productions, you'd have to say, would be uh, the Purge series yep. and you know, very famously Get Out. Mm. Now, he's been branching out into some unusual <laughs> entries recently. So with The Good Lord Bird, for example, is mm. a Blumhouse production. Mm. doesn't have, have any horror elements at all. Mm. Um, so well, this... it's horrific to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, <laughs> you still have PTSD after that I mean, one. I can say, I reckon Good Lord Bird has a horror-like <laughs> intensity. Yes. Like the intensity is pitched definitely. at the same level as horror. Definitely, yep. definitely. So they definitely... There, while a lot of them, there are also continuations of famous brands. So, for mm. example, the reboot Halloween is a yep. Blumhouse production. Uh, these are all much smaller in scale, mm. smaller in scope, lower in budget, and mm. the stars uh, are less starry. Now, possibly this first entry um, has some more well-known stars, but probably better known for TV than movies. And I, yeah, and I wonder if it's maybe worth mentioning that it seems, from what I can see, it seems like these four films in Welcome to the Blumhouse move more in the direction of a psychological thriller yes. than traditional horror. So it's 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 a little bit different from the regular brand, regular brand. Yeah, so the, they take a, place in kind of domestic environments more associated with television. That's right. And yep. the advertising uh, poster for Welcome to the Blumhouse, there's a there's an image of a house. Yep. And each of the the movies corresponds to a room. Yep. And the lie corresponds to the breakfast room. Yep. So it's like that domesticity that you associate with television or the telly movie. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I suppose in the second category of why this is TV rather than movies, is all of them are, are thematically linked. So yeah. all of them relate to families and what what people will do in families to protect others or what they will do to inflict pain on others. Yeah. So so dysfunctional family dynamics are I, what this is focused I on. I wondered if maybe an analogy would be some of the the telly movie series at Lifetime they put out. So they had like a 90s movie series called Moments of Truth, which yes. were all about distor- dysfunctional families, as you said, also stalkers, peeping toms. Actually, a lot of quite famous people like Paul Rudd made their debuts in those films. And right. It was an ongoing franchise of telly movies on a common theme. It so could be. I, I could, wonder if this is, this is not unlike that. This could be a new direction yep. for, for telly movies the telly in movie, some ways. The telly yeah. movie franchise. Yes, the telly yep. movie franchise, yep. absolutely. Now, what's interesting about this, this first entry over here um, the lie is that it's the only one that was not specifically commissioned for Blumhouse. Mm. So it premiered in Toronto in 2018. It was mm. like later loosely folded in mm. to the Welcome to the Blumhouse it, production. Isn't it funny how stuff happens like that? I know. So like it's it's weird to think that in 2018 a film that we might have heard about vaguely at Toronto now is part of a television package in the middle of a pandemic at Halloween. <laughs> yeah. It's just so weird. Just a sidebar. It's like how I love finding out that a film that, say, came out in 2020 has been in production since 2005. Oh. It's those weird backstories. It's very it's interesting, so interesting to see. Yeah. And, and yeah. as soon as you start analysing them as a you know, discrete package, you realise yeah. actually this was completely yeah. separate, you know, made well in advance yeah. of the actual release exactly. of the others. So it's a, this, I, th- I think, is interesting as well. It's apparently the only of 
the only one of the four that doesn't have a supernatural element. Oh, is that right? So this is much oh, more of a social okay. thriller, okay. family thriller. I got that wrong. For some reason, I thought they were all psychological thrillers. I think nature. I think the, the dominant focus is psychological oh, okay, right. psychological horror, right? More less so supernatural. But okay. I think all of the others have have some a degree of, of supernatural. Okay. Whereas this one doesn't at all. So mm. this one's much more of a thriller. It's based on a German movie called We Monsters. Oh, and it, right. Okay. And it's yeah. it's directed by the um, the director of whose name just died escapes me at the moment, but it's directed by the um, the writer and director of uh, television's um, The Killing, the American oh. adaptation of The Killing. Have you seen that? I have not I seen it. I haven't that. either. I'm really, I, yeah. Apparently it's really good. Apparently yeah. it's, as, it's as good as the original in a different way. Mm. Well, it yeah. sounds interesting. I, I think yeah. that, that Borderlands between mm. US and Mexico is always a space I'm interested in. Yeah. And it also stars the two stars of that, of that series, so yep. Peter Sarsgaard yep. and... Marae Enos. Yeah, oh, she's also in Big pronunciation, Love. Pronunciation, I'm yeah. uncertain. She's so. from Big Love as well. Big she's and she's really she's a really ethereal presence, isn't she? Like she's, she's got yeah. a great face. Yeah, and just a, her, her daughter here is played by Joey King. She makes so much sense as Joey King's mother, doesn't she? Yes. It's a great mother daughter pairing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So this this uh, the movie The Lie is about a father and the daughter, mm. a father and uh, his daughter who are making their way to a dance camp. Mm. They spot a a girl uh, on the side of the road who happens to be. Um, the daughter's best friend mm. and when they stop to, op- stop to offer her a ride uh, bad things bad things arise mm. so things go awry mm. in some ways and maybe just spoiler alert we should give a very brief plot synopsis I think it's hard to talk about the film and its originality without do you, do you want to do it? Do you well to do it? the yeah. daughter Joey King um, yeah. is found by the, the father after uh, deviating from the road to, for a bathroom break and um, she she suggests that she killed her best friend yep. by pushing her off a bridge yep. And she says in very clear terms, "I pushed, I pushed her off the bridge." And the, I suppose the agon of the of the movie is, you know, to what extent will Peter Sarsgaard and his his wife cover up for her yep. supposed mm. crime? Mm. So we see that, and we see the the strains placed on their relationship, mm. and especially as the the father of the so called deceased daughter mm. appears, we see an increasing desperate series of yep. events to cover up. But it's anything like, even though it does have that desperation. There's a really placid and kind of eerie stillness to the film as a whole. It's very atmospheric. It reminded me of like, I guess, 90s thrillers like Before and After or The Good Son, which are about parents kind of going to desperate lengths to avoid facing the fact that their child is a monster. Yes. Like it's really... There's a slight element that the child could be a could be a psychopath. Her, her placidity mm. and serenity and her seem like nonchalance after the after yeah. the crime itself is suspicious and they, they start to have their doubts. And a, This also reminds me of another fantastic yeah. series we watched recently. Defending Jacob? Defending Jacob. So I, I was going to say, I, I thought this was everything I wanted Defending Jacob to be. So, yes. look, I put my cards on the table. I love this. I thought this was, wow. this, I thought this was one of the, probably one of my favourite films I've seen this year, wow. um, let alone, you know, one of the favourite TV series. Uh, for me, this really felt like... I mean, I, I'm going to classify this as television just because I thought, even though it was 90 minutes long, it had the economy and the concision and the focus of a good television episode. It was it, it, it felt like part of an anthology rather than... It felt like it could have certainly been a pilot for yep, a TV series. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much I found fascinating. Like, I thought it was such an interesting picture of divorce. So basically, the film opens with the Joey King character, the daughter, being shuffled from one parent to the other while both parents are with their respective spouses. And it's a little bit confronting to her to see how 
to, to see her play, her parents directing pleasure elsewhere, away mm. from the family. And then when her friend gets in the car, the friend kind of, you know, flirts a little bit with the father. Mm. And again, she's kind of traumatised by her father's, I guess, excess pleasure outside mm. of the family. So that's the reason she gives for killing the friend. Mm. And then over the second half of the film, after she confesses to the murder, and she kind of returns to normality, her pleasure starts to traumatise her parents. Mm. Like the fact that she can laugh, the fact that she can watch television. So there's this whole kind of negotiation about what is appropriate pleasure and what pleasure looks like when, it's, when it strays outside the regular family bounds, which mm. I thought was really deftly done. Um, I thought it was just really suspenseful too. I thought it was like beautifully directed. And I thought like any kind of good psychological thriller, it, it elides a lot of the key moments in a really evocative way. So there's a scene about mm. 20 minutes through where the camera cuts to the dead girl's body. And I was like, oh, no, don't, don't show us that yet. Because I, I was suspecting that the girl wasn't dead after mm. all. And then it turned out to be the mother's dream of it. So like, mm. there's moments like that where it seems like it's about to disclose information and doesn't. Mm. Yeah, I just thought it had a really... You know, there's not many characters in it. There's not a lot that happens. So it has that kind of economy, that kind of... but you know, like tight, Very tight focus. Yeah, yeah. and almost like, like a budgetary economy yeah. as well yeah. in terms of, that a television episode has. But it, it has that kind of the atmosphere of a film. I, I've seen a few films in that lifetime kind of Moments of Truth series and it, it reminded me of them in the best way, except mm. it's not really melodramatic. It's more just like mm. straight suspense. Um, I thought, you know, you, you and I, Drew, are both big fans of the act. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Joey D. King. D.D. Yeah. Blanchard. <laughs> and Joey King is in that as um, D.D. Blanchard. And she, oh, Gypsy Rose, sorry, Blanchard. And she was just so great in that. And she's great in this too. I mean, all three of the actors, the family. Mm, they are, make a great, so great, great pairing. Very convincing. Like. Yeah. And, and all the side characters are great. And look... Should we give it? Should we do a spoiler here for the ending so we can discuss it, or should we leave uh, it? I think I think you should probably leave this Let's one. Just I, say, think this I think the ending is great. I mean, the ending is really poised. There's a twist. Deft. There's yeah. a twist at the end, and the and the twist is really nicely done. I, I just thought it, I thought it was great. Like I thought it was a really good film on its own terms, but also worked really well as part of an anthology. It has it has just because it is so concise. It's it's not. It's like 95% satisfying. I wanted something more. Yeah. But that makes sense to have three more films to compare it with. I think that's dialogue. right. I think this is actually a film that's really enhanced by its positioning as yes. a, a collection, as a Absolutely. sort of portmanteau yes. series about, about families yes. and family trauma. And I think had I gone to see that at a cinema, I would have been a little bit disappointed. A bit, a bit minimal. A bit minimal. A bit, a bit disappointed at the yeah. lack of lack of scope and scale. Yes. Um, but as a, as a discrete little mm. collection mm. all of a sudden you're like that piqued, piqued my interest and I'm intrigued to see yeah. where this is going to go I'm, I'm going to walk up to the next house of the welcome to the well, house next story I was going to say exactly like in terms of in terms of that um that that post you were talking about where each room mm. is a different room in in the Blum house mm. this felt like exactly that it felt like just one room, room. <laughs> yeah, yeah one room one group of characters before we moved on to the next so it, it, it's interesting like it it feels like this is maybe a new direction for the anthology series mm. that we're, you know, we, we may start to see mm. anthology series of films, especially with the pandemic making theatrical access really mm. difficult for a lot mm. of people. Yeah, I, I, what did you, what did, yeah. For low budget horror, I think yeah. this is, this is a, I think a, a sensible way of releasing mm. movies like this. I, I'm intrigued to see whether this is, a, this is a success, whether mm. people will actually watch all four, but I'm certainly, intrigued to watch all four in a way I wouldn't otherwise be if they were just released as discrete entries low-budget yeah. horror movies and it's kind of if it becomes a regular Halloween thing it's quite an eventful thing to look forward to mm. each year the yeah. idea of like uh, you know four Blumhouse films every Halloween to look forward you know to kind yeah. of it's a I like this release this release model and I, for whatever reason you know 
well, I don't think this is a masterpiece. I think it's a fairly successful, low-budget mm. uh, psychological thriller here. So, And I think, too, like when it comes to horror, like sometimes trying to make horror too high concept can, can kill it. Okay. Like trying to be too too intelligent. I'm not using intelligent in inverted commas. Trying to be too intelligent about horror can sometimes end up, or, or too sophisticated, especially mm. on television, can actually end up disavowing yeah. what makes the, that visceral kernel of horror. And, you know, as we've mentioned before, too, with shows like Servant, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to make a television series scary. Mm. And this wasn't scary, but it was eerie. It was. And it had an atmosphere which really stayed with me. Mm. After I finished watching it, it was certainly suspenseful mm. and did did to a certain extent stay with you. Definitely atmospheric. I think it also it is really reminiscent of defending Jacob. Family's <laughs> unconditional. You know, child killed. You know, but it, it just it, it's it, everything that that yes, series it, was not. And it also just takes that premise in a bolder direction. So instead mm. of spending you know what six episodes waiting around whether or not a kill a child killed another child, the child confesses immediately yeah. to her parents, and then they have to make of it what they will. Exactly, so, that's a much a much more interesting direction. Yeah, exactly. Much less cliche direction. So it's like as defending well. Jacob. I mean, in this case, family is conditional. <laughs> <laughs> family is unconditional. I mean, it's like defending Jacob, but just without the waffle. So mm. yeah, I thought it was. I thought it yeah. was one of like. One of my favourite Blumhouse movies, I think. Like, you know, in that context, like it, it within the anthology mm. context. So, I do you think you'll really be? Strong. Do you think you'll be following up with uh, Nocturne and Evil Eye? Definitely. And... Do you know anything about those? Like, I don't know much about the premise of any of the others. I know again, loosely based on family. Often, uh, females are quite centrally represented. Yeah. A lot of minorities are represented thing. as well. Yeah. So, so to a certain extent, he's filling in some gaps that haven't necessarily been. Mm delved into in in horror so i like this i like this release schedule i like this movie Mm. um i will give it a qualified recommendation Mm. i'm in on the the welcome to the blumhouse concept i hope it becomes an annual event me too look i'm I'm probably a bit bit more in than you are like i i I would recommend the movie on its own terms i thought it was a really beautifully done psychological thriller and yeah i'm really intrigued to see where the rest of the blumhouse um welcome to blumhouse franchise takes us you're into the blumhouse i'm into the blumhouse baby Okay, moving on to this week's archive choice, uh, United States of Tara, the Diablo <laughs> Cody series. Um, just for those who haven't seen it or need a refresh, it um, came out in 2009, created by Diablo Cody. It stars um, Tony Collette as Tara Gregson, um, American housewife who has dissociative identity disorder. Her husband's played by John Corbett, <laughs> her daughter by Brie Larson, her son by Keir Gilchrist, and her sister by Rosemary DeWitt. So the basic premise of the show is that when Tara gets stressed, she breaks out or dissociates into a number of alters, they call them, <laughs> as in alter egos. I love the alters. The alters are great. Um, and we meet we meet two of these in the pilot, although I've, I've since watched on, so I've met a few more of them. Um, the first alter we meet is uh, T, a kind of flirty teenager who we, we we actually transitioned to her pretty quickly. So yes. we only see a, um, a minute or so of Tara before she transitions into T, which is quite an interesting way to do it, actually. It to, is. To introduce her in the guise of one of her alters. Then she transitions out of T. And then her second persona that we meet, or second alter that we meet, is a guy called Buck, a kind of misogynist, um, grouchy Vietnam war vet. And then we meet a few later on, um, Gimme and Alice, but they're in later episodes. And then... We apparently meet another alto chicken later on. <laughs> but yeah, basically that that's the premise. So um, I, I absolutely love this, Drew. You know, one of my favourite genres is the sitcom. Oh, yes. Uh, you uh, are you are possibly the world's biggest fan of the sitcom. I love, I love sitcoms. <laughs> and I guess, you know, one of the things I love about sitcoms is, you know, the good kind of sitcom is the way in which they present a kind of expanded domesticity. So mm. often sitcoms are about a whole lot of different characters above and beyond a regular family unit who improbably live under the same roof. Yes. And, you know, 
often the premise of a sitcom is that you know it's, it's it seems permanent at first, but it gradually settles into. So it seems impermanent at first. It yes. seems temporary, but it gradually settles into something more permanent. So this is a bit like this is kind of an ingenious twist on that because all of these different improbable characters who share the same same roof are all different alters yes. of Tara. So Tara. Within Tara's character, there are all these totally incongruous characters who the rest of the family, her husband and two children, have learned to live with over yes. the years and have actually developed relationships with yes. and in some cases have developed rules with. So one of the key events early in the film is that when Tara's in the guise of tea, she tries to have sex with her husband, but her husband resists because he knows that Tara doesn't like him sleeping with tea Mm. You know when she's in that state. So I thought this was just I thought this was kind of one of the real genuine dramedies we've looked at on mm. the on the podcast. So maybe in that sense, it's not a classic sitcom, but you know the kind of process of transitioning in and out of these alters, it it's it causes Tara a lot of angst yes. and the family a lot of angst, but it's also very funny as well. So it's yes. it's a really queasy mixture of comedy and drama, mm. which is kind of that's characteristic of Diablo Cody as well. So yeah. I. I also appreciate it being half an hour. So I think yes. it's, it, it it really works for this series just because it makes the kind of, that that compressed narrative makes it much more manic and incongruous when she shifts from person to person. And also, I guess in future limits how many how many alters she can have in a single episode, right? So we only meet two of the four this season in the pilot, mm. and by the time we get to the like, third season where there are seven alters. You must only glimpse them, some of them, every now and then. So I, I loved it. I also thought there were a whole lot of interesting world-building questions that, yes. that this pilot raised, um, which will raise, which we can discuss in a moment. But w- what did you think? What was your what was your take on it? I thought two things that really stood out for yep. me. Uh, firstly, the fact that uh, it wasn't an origin story. Yes, and I I really liked that, Absolutely. and I really appreciated that yep. because I think that would have been really strained, really forced. Because it's the opposite. It's like in Medius Race. So That's it, right. It, just, it starts in the middle of the action. As we said, you you don't even get to know Tara no. initially. You you get to know her as T, and it's it's almost a bit uncanny when we because we spend about 10 minutes with T, this flirty teenager, it's a bit weird when we then transition back to Tara as a responsible middle-aged woman. <laughs> it's quite disorienting, but it works. Yep. And it avoids that, that trap of, uh, of the pilot really being uncharacteristic of the rest of the series. Yes, and in terms of what you said about Origins too, I appreciate that it didn't attribute it to some huge trauma. It's yes. like, it just happens when she gets stressed. Yes. It's just a, stre- <laughs> just a stress coping mechanism. And uh, the other thing I love about this is just the wonderful warmth and tolerance that her yes. family has for her alternative exactly. personalities. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that flows through the rest of the show about yep. a, a tolerance towards alternative lifestyles, yeah. alternative ways of living, and also mental health. I think it's yep. a, it's got a really compassionate depiction and affection of someone mm. and a family who's dealing with someone with mental health issues. And that's, I think, where the dramedy element yes, comes in. Absolutely. And, and there's, a, there's a warmth and um, ingenuity to the show, which I really appreciated. And it's kind of interesting too, isn't it, just watching the family almost seamlessly reconfigure themselves. Mm. Like they all obviously have different relationships with the different alters. It's kind of interesting in terms of that sense too, in terms of different ways of being. I mean, it was funny watching it. Like it feels so prescient of trans rights stuff happening now. right? Like So transitioning is is a verb that's used the whole time. And one of... Her alters is male. Um, yes. Is uh, what's his name again? But, say but, um, Buck. Buck. Yeah, I'm say Butch. Um, and so, in in effect, that's a trans mask identity. And the way in which she transitions into Buck, there's never any real sense that it's a woman playing a man. Like as soon as no. she's Buck, she is a man. Mm. Everyone just shifts into male pronouns seamlessly. And the way in which she does it, the way in which Tony Collette kind of plays a part, also 
it, there's no sense of drag. No. It, there's just a sense that seamlessly she kind of becomes a man. I mean, I also thought that Toni Collette was the perfect actress for this role. She has yes. such a... She has such a kind of mercurial face. Yes. And she looks so different from different angles. She does. She and has a chameleon-like quality. Yeah, And exactly. she has a face that's that's both young and old. Yes, exactly. Both masculine and feminine. Yes. And she's one of those actors who I can never quite... Holly Hunter's a bit like this. I can never quite picture what she looks like. No. I, I associate her so dramatically with her role. So I can with picture her as Muriel. Mm. I can picture her in Unbelievable. I can picture her in all kinds of films. But to picture her as her is mm. quite hard, which I guess is a mark of a good actor. Yeah. But in this, it's it, it works brilliantly because the moment she's Buck, she's Buck. Yes. The moment she's... And what's great is that the characters, because the episode is so short and because there's only a limited amount of time you can spend with any of them, in a way, Tara herself doesn't even fully feel like the anchor character. No. Tara just feels like one character amongst many. Her, yes, her family feels like they they anchor the show even more so than, than Tara. And yes, really, a exactly. lot of the show is, is almost more about the family than it is about Tara yes, in exactly. an interesting way. Yeah. I think that one of the dangers with a show like this, and the reason why I never watched it, is it looks like it's a real... A very actorly yep, type show. Yep. I think it, it, at its worst, it could be like a really bad theatre sports presentation. Yes. You know, oh, do man, do uh, yep. do fifteen year old girl. And for that yeah. reason, I kind of appreciated not having to do all the personae or the, all the altars in the first episode. Yes. I think oh, I, I know this actually happens because I've watched it a lot. <laughs> but I think you know the strongest version of this show is if. It just she just transitions in and out of these characters kind of spontaneously yeah. without having to showcase them all the time. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and that, so there's some really interesting world building questions that go along with that. So I think one of the questions the pilot raises, kind of intriguingly, is, you know, what triggers different alters, mm. and ha- will we get to know that? And also, to what extent does Tara remember being in the altar? Because something that's mm. kind of like, it's kind of radical almost the extent to which the altar is a completely different person. Mm. So she, but. It's funny, like the altars seem aware of her, but she doesn't seem aware of them. Mm. So, for example, when T is coming on to John Corbett, she says, "Look, I'm in, I'm in your wife's body. You know, I'm, you know, I'm 18 years old, but I'm in your 37 year old wife's body." So T is aware, and that the altars are aware of inhabiting her body. Yes. But then when she comes to, she can't remember what they did. No. So, in that sense, the altars almost have more autonomy than she does. Mm. So and the, the altars seem to be triggered by events in her life. So yes. they seem to be mirroring events in her life. So, exactly. for example. The altar, first altar, T, uh, occurs when she sees her teenage daughter, who's yes. played by Brie Larson, exactly. um, hooking up with a with mm. a boy, and, or discovering that she's using the morning exactly. after pill. So it suddenly, I guess, raises some sort of repressed memory of her yep. being a teenager. And so something I wondered is, will T always be triggered by adolescent yes. stuff? Yes. I mean, what's interesting too, I think, is that you know. W- the characters aren't just cookie cutter characters no. either. I mean, Buck is quite threatening yeah. and has a bit of a has a bit of a kind of aggressive edge. Mm. But even that, the family have just kind of accommodated. It's almost yeah. like with each new altar, some member of the extended family comes to stay. Yeah. So the kind of the wacky niece, the kind of yeah. ornery old uncle. Yeah. Like it's yeah. like it's like an entire family is kind of gathered yeah. in her in her person. And in some ways, it's like the the best part of a sitcom every episode because yes. all the family dynamic has to be sort of reintegrated mm. or, re- or altered or shifted mm. in every episode to accommodate a new member of the cast. It's almost mm. like, you know, one of those guest appearances yes, on, the, exactly. on a sitcom, you know, or the na- next door neighbour wanders in, but it's it's within the internal family exactly, unit. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. It's a show that almost doesn't need guest stars or cameos. Mm. So, you know, in a way, that makes it even cosier because... Mm. And it's a kind of... Intri- because I guess the sitcom is always driven by the tension between... 
the cosiness of the domestic hearth where mm. you watch television as well mm. and all the things outside it. So the most ingenious, I think, flexible, fluid sitcoms expand that familial space. In mm. Seinfeld, it happens through friendship rather mm. than family. In Will and Grace, it happens through LGBT relationships rather than just regular family. All, all the best sitcoms um, in Shit's Creek, it happens through different kinds of family. So all the best sitcoms take this kind of you know, American domestic space and expand it. And I think this series does a really ingenious job of capturing that rhythm of expansion and contraction mm. that is a sitcom. Like the family expands out to contain all her personas, mm. but all her personas are then gathered back into the family. I'm making big hand gestures while I'm doing this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, so yeah. the family, it's always yeah. expanding and contracting. So yeah. something about it, it's yeah. almost like it... That the subject of this of the series Billy was doing charades for expanding and contraction. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> my, my teacher hands, but it's almost like the subject of the series is the rhythm of the sitcom itself. Yes, which I think, as someone who loves sitcoms, yeah, so that's true. But but also not in the sense of blithely deconstructing. So like deconstructing it. So compare it to something like Modern Family, one of my least liked sitcoms, which you know is all about undercutting the sitcom in a really snarky way. I mean, it, that feels like a sitcom made by people who don't like sitcoms, yeah. for people who don't like sitcoms. Whereas United States of Tara, which is roughly contemporary, it it kind of deconstructs a sitcom and captures the essential rhythm of the sitcom, but from the perspective of someone who obviously loves sitcoms. Yes. And for an audience who loves sitcoms. Yes. So it's a good faith gesture, yeah. which I appreciate about but, it. And but, I've watched a whole season already. <laughs> I, I friggin' love it. <laughs> but it's, it, adds, it certainly adds depth and pathos yes, to, absolutely. to it as well. There's a genuine heart to this show, which is well, it's, it's something like, that you can't It's like the depth minimize. and pathos of that of the sitcom itself, yeah. this sense that we have this... this sacrosanct domestic space in American culture. It is, by definition, exclusive. The sitcom is always... The best sitcoms are always trying to expand it and bring in other people, LGBT people, family, you know, people of other races, trying to make this space more elastic. Yeah. And that's that, that, elast, like that elasticity, that to and fro, that expansion, that's what happens in this show so beautifully. Yeah. So and I love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm waxing lyrical about United States of Tara. I loved it. I have to say another thing. I think the supporting cast here is excellent. Amazing supporting John cast. John Corbett is great. And um, he's such a good foil. Yes. He, and just here, because one of the subplots we see in the pilot is that um, Tara's sister, Rosemary DeWitt, mm. is kind of, on the one hand, exhausted with Tara's um, alters, but also tries to broker Tara's mental health to kind of come on to her yes, husband. Yeah. And just the way in which he wards off her flirtation, but also just casually normalises. It reminds me so much of trans discourse. Like mm. just taking something that seems totally alien to so many people mm. and just kind of being okay with it. Yeah. In, in, in a matter-of-fact... There's, there's a kind of matter-of-factness to mm. how everyone deals with it that's just so yeah. compelling. He has a kind of ex exasperated acceptance of yep. everything that's happening around yep, him. And, exactly. And that, but, but even not that exasperated, just a kind of like a quasi-comic mm. understanding. And mm. the kids are great too. Oh, the uh, kids, the way in which the kids... Because yes. both her alters are in their own way less mature than the kids. I mean, yeah. another massive thing about the sitcom is... Um, Adult children, mm. infantilized adults, and it can be really grating in the wrong hands. Again, modern family. Yes. It's just like, you know, adults playing children. Whereas here The son in particular, very precocious, but yeah. he works. He really yeah. he works well again as a foil to her yeah. to her like, I suppose, very immature or schizophrenic personality. Yeah. But also 
the way in which she plays a kind of childlike character in both of her alters never feels too saccharine either. Mm. It just it feels like vulnerability. Mm. It feels like she's vulnerable, and that's yeah. part of what makes it compelling. Yeah, and great seeing Brie Larson in a very early role as well. Yes, well, you're a big Brie Larson fan. <laughs> you find she's interesting, <laughs> and also just great. Just you know, Tony Collette can just choose scenery too. I she mean, can. She, she's great value to watch. I think often she's in films or TV series that don't quite give get her room her. Yeah. yeah don't quite get her and don't give her room for her full scope mm. so I think but this that is this is a real showpiece this for her, is brilliant for her acting and just watching it for the last thing I say like it just took me back just the font the images the style to like the DVD era like this feels like I was like how <laughs> yes. did I not hire this out on DVD how did I not own this on DVD <laughs> how like did you miss this when it first I, came out I don't this know. is right right in your wheelhouse I, I, in your I wheelhouse. have no idea I, I remember I did go on a really awkward date once um, hi Tim um, and it, a lot of the date was spent with the, the guy recommending it to me so oh. maybe subconsciously <laughs> that sub, it was quite a you rebelled against subconsciously it. <laughs> that, that turned me this is like a long time ago but that, that turned me off it so right. um, I mean I had to make like it was kind of you know, date where I like, didn't have a lot to talk about so we talked about united states of tara so maybe that's that's what's happening kind of subconsciously but yeah it it just something about it i mean mm. something about watching it made me feel so mm. nostalgic for having like a dvd box set i just do you know what i mean like you really just, attached to those dvd sitcom yeah, box sets but yeah. just the look of it even this yeah. is just pre-hd yeah and the look of it the style of it yeah. the household the family the technology yeah it was just that very moment so that yeah that that's another reason why i loved it yeah anyway we're getting time to, Drew, what, what's your choice for next week's pilot club uh, uh, um, well just, just before corner. we oh, yeah, uh, are you in or are you out on your oh, I've, I've watched whole, I've watched whole first season and I, I wish there were more seasons but I'm, I'm very grateful to Diablo Cody for, for what we've got <laughs> yeah I think it's I think it's a great sitcom the yeah. sitcom's not, not necessarily my genre but certainly if I uh, if I was to watch a sitcom this would certainly unqualified recommendation and you can see like not to just keep banging on about it but at that time when sitcoms there was this move towards revisionist deconstruction yeah. this this is such a good faith gesture it is compared to the kind of modern family style of sitcom certainly yeah. certainly I'm hard in hard in Drew <laughs> okay well speaking of uh Archive Quarter. Yeah. Um, so my selection for next week mm. is a series from 1974. Uh. It is a sci-fi series that only lasted one season, mm. and it's called Kolchak the Night Stalker. Oh, I've wanted to see this for yeah. ages, and and I watched something recently which talked about Kolchak as a stylistic influence. I'm trying to think what it was. Yeah, was it one of the shows we watched? Anyway, sorry, it, yeah, it yeah. might have been. Yeah. yeah. So this one's about a. Uh, a newspaper reporter mm. who investigates supernatural crimes yeah. in his spare time. That's a nice counterpoint, to, uh, companion piece, sorry, to evil as well. Yes. Like the procedural. I didn't know this had a supernatural component. Yeah, I thought it was like a police procedure. No, no. It's a, it's a, it's that unusual mixture and I think it might have been quite groundbreaking for its yeah. time. Very well highly regarded. I've never seen it myself, so I think it should be, That's a great should choice. be quite interesting... And I feel like some of our more more like our archive corner recently have been like our choices have been more recent. Yeah. So I think this is you know theoretically for archive corner we're going back as far as the 1940s. Yeah. So I think it's good to have something a bit yeah. older as well. I like the idea of doing an archive corner on a single series TV show. Yeah. I had no sense that it was one season. I feel like there's something really satisfying about a pilot. For there a is season. also just one season highly acclaimed. Yeah. So. I mean, that, and you hear it name checked so often. I, I got the impression that went on for years. No. That's no. fascinating. So I'm I, I'm really looking forward to exploring this very early early supernatural mystery series. Cold check next week. That's a great choice. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>